0: Amen. Hey, can we uh, just show some honor to all of our musicians who lead us so well every week in at East and West? We love you. Thank you. Well, I want to jump right in. We're continuing our Genesis series, and I'm going to do something a little different today. Uh, I'm I'm going to spend some time teaching, and I want to unpack what is such a critical text in the Bible, because essentially, it's the framework for the entirety of the rest of the story. And so I thought instead of just breezing by this because it's something that you think you've heard before, I wanted to jump in. So if you'll just do the work today and you'll, t- you'll just follow along as I teach, I hope at the end God is going to speak a word to you. But we've got to do some legwork and we're going to learn some stuff. It's okay to learn some stuff in church. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to get one. Get your Bible out, open it on your lap to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some awesome folks in red shirts. That's our gift to you. I want you to be able to follow along. So even if just today you want to borrow one because you forgot it, you can put it back on your way out. But just raise your hand and keep it open to Genesis chapter 3, and then we're going to jump right in. This has been an interesting week uh, for me as a dad. Uh, it's been one of those weeks where I've just been so aware of my kids developing in their own stages, and it's been one of those weeks. Where Where each one of them, I've had some type of disciplinary encounter. Um, You know what? It's been incredible to watch my three kids. I have three kids Ava's nine, Aiden is seven, and Alexander is two. And I'll tell you what, you don't really get a good perspective on the human condition until you have kids. And it starts to bring things into full scope. And I watched each one of them just deal with uh, repercussions from doing something they shouldn't have done and how they deal with their own wrongdoing. And they all have different approaches. Early in the week, somebody spilt some milk. And my wife and I knew it was our daughter. And so uh, my wife approached our daughter. And my my daughter's way to deal with being busted having done something wrong is she is like a chronic deflector. She'll just try to wiggle around it and as long as she doesn't have to to totally own it, she tries to get out of it. Well, the milk must have spilt. She says, well, someone must have spilt it. And we keep having to narrow it down until we say, well, who was that someone? Well, somebody that was a girl in this house. And she just, she keeps trying to deflect. She's so smart and she knows as long as I don't say it was me, I'm safe. And so that's how she deals with her own kind of, her own issues and how she, when she goes wrong, she kind of tries to deflect it and dodge it, just kind of rope-a-dope like Muhammad Ali. Just as long as I don't. Admit it. I'm going to be all right. And then there's my son, Aiden, who's a little more tender-hearted. And uh, what he tries to do is just avoid it as long as possible. Like he'll leave the mess and just hope no one notices it. But then what he does is he usually just crumbles under the weight of his own conscience. And so even this week, he just came to me and broke down in tears about something that was weighing so heavy on him, but really it wasn't that big a deal. And I'm like, it's okay, buddy, but I love how how just soft-hearted you are. But he tries as long as he can to just avoid having to deal with it until it ultimately breaks him. And then there's our son, Alexander, and he's got a whole different approach. He's got kind of the dominant, you're the problem approach. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's quite something. Even this week, I, I saw him, uh, my, my son Aiden was playing with a ball, and Alex uh, said, can I play with that ball? And so I said, Aiden, can you share for a minute and let Alex try the ball? And so Alex, Aiden gave the ball to Alex, and Alex played with it for a second. I was like, all right, buddy, you give it back to Aiden, because we share everything. And Alex held the ball, and he looked at me, and he looked at Aiden, and he looked at me, and he looked at Aiden, and then he turned around and started running. <laughs> and, uh, and he ran, and he found a cupboard, and he, and he looked at me again, he opens the cupboard and throws the ball, and he slams it and goes like this. like like so so he just goes outright defiance so anyway he's been rightly named Alexander the Great he's got he's got some some uh, energy but it's been interesting as a father to kind of watch the different ways that my kids all navigate life in the world specifically when it comes to consequence and being confronted maybe with their own re- own actions or being confronted with other things like school and and pressures and tests and bullies and all these things and watching how they deal with the world they live in and the world inside of them. It's been interesting to watch them do that. And they've inevitably have already each been confronted with the reality that in this world there are actions and reactions. There are positives and there are negatives. There are deposits and withdrawals. There are blacks and whites and there are wins and losses and there is right and wrong and life and death. And it's been cool to watch them navigate through this and see this unfold as their father Dealing with the conditions of this world. I think it's interesting for me because it gives me a perspective on what I've been doing my whole life in trying to figure out how do I deal with the conditions of this world, with the conditions of my own life, my own heart, my own mind. What are my tactics to deal with my own wrongdoing and the issues I face in this world? Here's a question I want to ask you before we jump into our text today. What do you do with evil? What do you do with wrong? do you do with the bad? How do you reconcile the world that you live in? How do you process it? How do you reconcile the world, not just that you live in, but the world that is inside of you? How do you process it? Are you like my daughter? Do you deflect? Do you dodge? Do you rope a dope the issues? Are you like my son who just avoids it outright until it all together crushes them? Or are you like my other son who, in kind of just bold delusion, just thinks you're the problem? How do you deal with evil in this world? That's the question I want to ask today as we jump into Genesis chapter 3. What do you do with sin? What do you do with sin? Now, sin is not a word we hear often in our world anymore. In fact, it's not a word that we like to talk about. It's not a word that gets a lot of airtime anymore. It's not something that we generally like to deal with. It's something that most of us want to avoid talking about. We would like to ignore it if we could. In fact, there's never been a time in human history where we have been better at avoiding the topic. There's never been a time where we've been more committed to avoiding or deflecting the idea of right and wrong. There's never been a time where the lines of right and wrong have been more categorically blurred. We live in a day and age where the only thing that is objectively wrong is calling something objectively wrong. Truth is relative, truth is your truth, you do you and I'll do me and let's just have a great time and pretend that everything's gonna be all right. There's no one religion. All roads lead to the same place. There's no male. There's no female. There's no winners. There's no losers. My son's amazing collection of participation medals is a great example of the fact that there are no winners and losers. I was at my daughter and my son's basketball game today and realized, you know what? They're still not keeping score. My daughter's nine. (laughs) Someone's got to show this person how to win and lose. The world we live in does not want to draw lines. In fact, this year I found out in in the public school system that there aren't really grades anymore. Did you know that? They're just kind of doing you. Everything's tailored to you. We don't really want to, to draw lines. That's the world we live in. But the problem is that doesn't stand up at a certain point. It's great to say there are no lines, there is no right and wrong, there is no male and female, there is no black and white. It's great to say that until reality presses in on us in such a way and we get found in our own kind of contradictions. Uh, This past week, a a friend of mine posted a a meme online. I don't know if we have that picture or not, but he he posted a meme, meme online about a shirt that says, there is no gender, but then to check out, you have to select male or female okay. See, sometimes you need categories. Sometimes there needs to be a line. Sometimes categories are needed. Sports needs categories. I think it's going to be interesting as the whole, as transgender, as these issues kind of continue to become front and center, it's going to be interesting to see like what happens with the Olympics and stuff. How are you going to tell a guy who now is a girl that he can't, she can't compete with the other girls. Everything gets very difficult when we stop actually having categories. My question is, how do you deal with the world? Because my point when I get talking about the fact that we need lines is, not dealing with it and ignoring it is not how you deal with it. Not... Uh, drawing attention to it, not saying, okay, this is right or this is wrong, or is this right or is this wrong? Not having the conversation is not helping deal with the dysfunction that is in our world and in all of us. We need to honestly look at the world we live in and the world around us. Life actually depends on being honest about brokenness, environmentally, Socially, economically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. There is brokenness in our world, and we need to deal with it. It needs to be dealt with. And so the question is, how do you deal with the messed up reality of the world that you and I find ourselves in? How do you deal, even more so, how do you deal with the messed up reality of the world you find in you? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with your own dysfunction? There was a book published in 1973 by a guy named Carl Menninger. Anybody ever heard of Carl Menninger? He's a world-famous psychologist, uh, totally uh, like a secularist. He wasn't uh, like evangelical Christian, not a person you'd find in a church like ours. And he published a book called Whatever Became of Sin... And he's actually had this whole premise that because we've done away with categorical right and wrong, because we've thrown away the idea of sin and we don't call it evil, evil, or right, right, we have actually thrown away the beginning of the path to adequately deal with it. He says this, this is such a profound quote but from a person who's not a committed Christian like, like I am. He says this, I'm calling for a revival of the conscious sense of guilt and repentance. I call for a revival of sin. He means like of an understanding of sin. What would be the good of that? You say, why do we need more breastfeeders? Why not a no-fault theology? No one to blame. Things just happen. Whoops, alas. Because the assumption that there is sin both implies, implies both the possibility and the obligation for intervention. we got to do something with it. We want to help ourselves and others, hence sin is the only hopeful view. When evil appears around us and no one is responsible, no one is guilty, no moral questions are asked, then there is in short nothing to do, so we sink into despairing hopelessness. Is that not a a picture of our world we live in today? Therefore, the consequence of my proposal for a revival of the consciousness of sin would not be more depression, but less. That we're actually going to start dealing with the problems in this world. We're actually going to start dealing with the problems in our lives. We're actually going to start processing them and figuring out a way forward to find an answer. And so today, as we jump into Genesis 3, you're going to find the Bible's answer for the problem of evil. You're right. You're going to see the Bible's answer for why things are the way they are, why you are the way you are, why I am the way I am, and the way forward. And so the Bible does not waste any time. I mean, we're, we're like two pages in, and here we're talking about it. And in fact, the entirety of the Bible, save for uh, four chapters, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 2, 1 and 2, 2, the rest of this entire book is a conversation around just that, dysfunction and death and sin, and what do we do with it? And so we're going to jump in today and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, and it's going to paint the scope or the picture for the problem, the human condition, the creation condition, and how on earth we're going to deal with it. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Genesis 3. For those of you who are just joining us, uh, we're in our second week now of a a Bible series, and we're just going to start going through page by page, chapter by chapter, the book of Genesis. If you were here last week, you found out Genesis means the book of... No one. Okay, one person was here last week. Good. Yeah, the book of beginnings, the book of origins. It's, it's the Bible's version of how things or why things are the way they are. It's been misappropriated. We talked about that. You know, it's not a just-so story. It's not something you're supposed to read uh, as, as like a, a scientific document. You're supposed to read it as it's depicting the human condition to us. And so that's what it is doing. And so last week, we saw the creation story. Everybody remember? God said, let there be, and there was. And we, we saw about God's creative power expressed in his word. Now this week, we see in chapter 2, we don't have time to dive in. I wish we did. But chapter 2, we see the creation story continued. Everything is amazing. God creates everything. And then God creates man. And then it says God creates Eve, woman. Or God creates woman in chapter 2. Does it doesn't name her yet. God creates woman. It's actually interesting to think, uh, as as creation scales, it gets progressively more complicated and beautiful. And the last thing God made was woman. That was a compliment, and it did not come out like one. So, I didn't mean complicated. I meant more complex. (laughs) I'm digging a hole. So if you read Genesis 2, and maybe you should go home and do that after the service, but Genesis 2 just gives a little more framework, talks about man and woman have been created. God created them both in the image of God, and then God gives dominion over humanity. And That's a crucial thing that we can't miss. God says, okay, I made all of this, and you are my crown creation, and you are my representative on earth, and you are in charge. That's essentially what Genesis 2 says. Humanity are in charge. They're the stewards of the earth, and the earth is under human authority. And so we find that happens, and we also find a clue in Genesis 2. I want to just make sure we hit before we jump into Genesis 3 is that there were two trees. The author wants you to know there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil where God commanded, uh, this is a a space, a, a, a tree that you cannot eat from, God said, or else you will die. This is the only commandment we get. God said you will die if you eat from that tree. However, there was another tree, the tree of life. There were two trees in the garden. The tree of life was the source of eternal life in the garden. And then we find Genesis 3, and it sets the frame... For how we understand the way things are and why things are the way they are. Now, Genesis presents to us the reason why things are the way they are. Let's just jump in, let's read it, and I'm gonna unpack uh, the whole story and the whole condition, and we're gonna look at the problem of evil and what to do about it. Are you ready? Chapter one, or chapter three, verse one says this. Okay, so now the serpent, the snake, was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit in the tree in the midst of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, which he did not say you can't touch it. She's already thinking about it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced, and she saw, if you, uh, if you want to highlight or underline something, underline this. She saw the tree was beautiful. Underline its fruit looks delicious, looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And this right here, let's pause right here, is the moment that sin enters the world, according to the Bible. This was the moment that broke everything. Now, let's just break this down for a second. What just happened? It says, The serpent deceived Adam and Eve into eating from the tree that God had explicitly commanded them not to eat from. That's, now, when you read this, Yes, let your head go there. Play it out. You know what? God, is o- it's okay to, to, to try to picture how this went down. That's fine. But more than that, God wants you to see yourself in this story and how we have all been like Adam and Eve, okay? So Adam is a representation of humanity. So you need to look at it as, I have been him. I have done those things, okay, when you look at it. So it says, who is the serpent and how did he deceive him? Now, the serpent is, we find out later as the Bible progresses, the serpent is God's, uh, not God's nemesis, he's a fallen angel, Satan. We don't know a whole lot about Satan other than he is the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says. He is the one who took a, a, a section of the angelic uh, creation who turned against God. He wanted to be God himself, and the Bible says God cast him out of heaven. It's important to note that Satan is not God's archenemy. Satan is ping to God, all right? So every every it's not a, you know, sometimes you get this picture of like good and evil duking it out, and it's not quite like that. Like there's God and there's no other. And so you got to understand that. However, Satan hates God, and so he tries to, to get at God by destroying what God has created, namely his prized creation, who? Us, Humans. And so here we find him, make his way into the Garden of Eden where God had placed Adam and Eve, and he deceives them, and he deceives them by appealing to three natural urges inside of all of us. Did you know, and I wish I had time to preach on this, I don't, because i got to get somewhere else, but all of the ways that you are tempted to sin are in ways that you are trying to satisfy a God-given urge the wrong way. And so that's what Satan does. He appeals to the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Every sin in human history has been one of those three things. The enemy doesn't have a whole lot of tricks. He's been doing the same thing since the beginning. And the way he deceives is by twisting and getting you to doubt the Word of God. Last week, we talked about what? The Word of God is God's creative agent. It's the power of life. So how is the enemy going to kill? By twisting and distorting and causing lies to come between you and your ability to trust the Word for life. And that's what he does with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve eventually defy God. They eat from the tree that they were commanded not to eat from. And this is where sin enters the world. Sin causes a great severance between us and God. This is what happens. Sin, yes, it's disobedience, but you got to understand sin a little deeper than that. Are we okay to teach today? It's going to help you for the rest of the journey, and we'll get back into fun preaching and telling stories and stuff. But this week, I just want to, I want to make sure you have this. Sin is disobedience, but it's more than that. Sin is a severance. Sin is like defection. Sin is like not being aligned with the life-giving power of God. It's, it's like a, a channel that is now cut off. That's what sin does, and that's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. Sin... Here's how I define it. Sin is this function that comes from defiance, which results in a severance with God. Sin is this function that comes from defiance or disobedience, which results in a severance with God. So this gives us a picture, though, and I want you to see this. As we get looking at the human condition, we get looking at why we are the way we are, why things are the way they are. It shows us a little bit of a secret into what the root of sin actually is and where it came from, what it's saying. Now, Satan deceived them. Hang with me. Sin requires deception, and Adam and Eve defied God's word, yes, and they were accountable for it, and you're going to see how it plays out in a minute. But it actually uncovers the root of sin and the cause of where sin actually comes from. Sin is not only breaking the will of God. It's not only breaking the word of God, but more fundamentally, here it is. If you want to understand the heart of sin, the root of sin. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God. That's what sin is at its heart. At its root, it is you placing yourself as the ultimate priority in the universe. And that's the very thing that got the snake, the serpent, cast out of heaven. The Bible says that actually he wanted to be God himself, and God, you can't do that. That's the one thing you can't do. There's only one God, and so that got him cast out of heaven. Sin is not only breaking the will of God, it is putting yourself in the place of God. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Pride is the cause of sin. It's the root cause. Pride is a cause of sin. And here's the deal. We're all complicit. Every one of us have shared the same thinking and heart and attitude of the serpent, where we wanted to be in place of God where we are the ultimate priority, where we are the center of our own affection and attention, where we are the center of the universe. That is the heart and root of all sin. I don't think you ever thought of it that way. I bet you've never thought of yourself as a Satanist before. Have you? You know, you know like the Church of Satan? Do you know they don't worship Satan? Satanists worship themselves. That's the heart of Satan. It's self-idolatry. It's self-focus. C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. When we place ourselves in place of God, that is what absolutely creates the root of sin, and everything else flows from that. It is that, you saw it in, Genesis, in verse 5. Look back in your Bible. It says this, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat, and here it is, and you will be like God knowing both good and evil, and she was convinced. And that's what broke in sin. It is the heart that wants to, that says, I shall be like God. I am the center of my own attention. At the core of sin is self-exaltation and self-preservation. That's the root of all sin. And so here's the deal, and this is where this gets scary. Anytime, if God is God and he is holy and there is only one God, anytime you exalt yourself... Any time, of, any time of self-exaltation, self-preservation, you are guilty of sin. Do you know what the number one commandment, and Jesus said all the rest of the commandments flow from this one. Do you know what it is? There's one God, have no other gods before me. See, sin at its root is this heart that says, I will be like God. It's about self-preservation. Do you know like we can, our, our hearts are unbelievably deceptive. And that you can even do the right things for the wrong reasons. Do you know that? And in fact, uh, there's, this, there's this old preacher back, he's from New England, this famous revivalist, Jonathan Edwards. He had this whole talk about common virtue and how most of our virtue is just common virtue, not true virtue, meaning uh, a lot of the virtue that we think are, we're doing right, we're actually doing right for the wrong reasons. And he has this whole example about how, you know what, like maybe it's about being honest, that you know you be honest here for two reasons for for reasons of pride or reasons of fear. I'm honest a because I don't want to be like people who aren't. Well, really at the root of that you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it for you. I don't want to be like them. I want to be a good person. That's that's not it's still the heart of sin. Or maybe maybe he said that here's the other way you can you can twist it. Be honest because in the end it'll pay off for you. You know. What goes around comes around. And you do do good to people and they'll do good back to you. Well, that's still motivated by fear. And the point he's making is at the depths of the core of our heart is this attitude of self-preservation and self-exaltation. And it goes so deep. And that is the heart or the root of sin. Sin is not only breaking the will of God, but it's putting yourself in the place of God. Pride is the cause of Sin and we are all complicit. So we've got that down. Now let's watch what happens next. Are you with me? you awake? I know we're diving deep today, but this is important stuff because it's going to help frame in why we have a great hope. We're going to get there in a second. So pride is the cause of sin. It's in you. It's the way of the serpent. We've all said, I will ascend. Correct? Am I right? No? You're like, no, it's just you, man. No, no, it's all of us. Verse 7 says this. Let's keep going. At that moment, it says, so she says, I'll take it, they eat, they eat, they disobeyed God. It says, at that moment, their eyes were open and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. They hid, you can underline that. Then the Lord called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. You can underline that. Who told you you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? You see, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the Hebrew, it actually represents a loss of innocence. Actually, like, uh, they're now accountable for what they know. I wish I had more time to talk about that. There's so much in here. I wish I had time. So it says, the man replied, it was... so." Have you eaten from the fruit? Verse 12. The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Age-old tactic. (laughs) Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Here it is, verse 15. I just want you to highlight this, embolden it, circle it, put an asterisk beside it. We're coming back to it in a minute. And I will cause hostility between you, who the serpent, who is Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he circle that, Put a little smiley face and a cross, and we'll come back to that. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and the pain you will give birth, and and pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And the man, he said, and to the man, since you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. If you're taking notes, write this down, number two. So we get looking at the story we find ourselves in, number two, this dysfunction, dysfunction and death is the curse of sin, and everything is affected. Dysfunction and death is the curse of sin, and everything is affected. Now, we're doing some Bible study, but look back and what happened. Here's, here's how this went back down. Because of sin, because sin is what? It's a severance from the flow of life from God. We've become out of alignment to receive life giving power from God out of union with God. So, because sin is that, and because humans were what? We were the authority on earth, God gave us authority. That means that when humanity sinned, we got out of alignment with the flow of life of God, not just for ourselves, but for what? All of creation. All of creation now enters this tailspin of dysfunctionality. Why? Because the head... The head of creation broke off alignment and now all of creation is fractured. That's what happens. That's why in Romans 8, I don't know if you've ever been there, Romans 8, Paul says creation is subject to futility. Well, it's not creation's fault that creation's broken is what it's saying. Creation is subject to futility. It's in bondage. It's fractured. It's dysfunctional. That's because of sin. There's four things. If, you want, if you're a note taker and you want to geek out a little bit, there's four things you can see that actually sin affects right here in the text. First, you see natural dysfunction. You see natural dysfunction. You see in that verse, it says, the ground is cursed to Adam. The ground is cursed because of you. All of your life, you're going to struggle to scratch a living. By the sweat of your brow, God says, you'll have food, and then you're going to return to dust. So what's, what's it saying right there? It's saying because of sin, you're going to see decay. You're going to see disease, disaster, and ultimately Death. This is because of the curse of sin. It's because of that that nature is subject to brokenness, to bondage. Every single instance of disease, of death, of decay is ultimately the result of sin. It's like I heard it once described like if you had if I had a big grandfather clock up here and there was a top Uh, Top sprocket that was the main kind of last sprocket that kept everything in order. If I popped that out and I threw it down in the middle of it, all of a sudden you'd start to hear gears grinding and electrical smoke would come up and you'd hear it churning and chugging. That's in effect what the Bible says has happened to creation. That that the top of it, us, we decided I don't want to be a sprocket anymore. And we jumped out of there and now everything's out of alignment and everything is broken and grinding. That's what's happening in creation. The Bible explains that the defun- dysfunction that we see everywhere, crazy weather, natural disasters, famine, hardship, death itself is all the result of sin. I remember uh, not too long ago, there, I, I was mentioning this in another sermon and the woman said, I said, Can- cancer is the result of sin. And this woman said on Facebook, how can you say that people get cancer because of sin? And what she thought I said was people get cancer when they sin. That's not what I said. Cancer exists because of sin. Death exists because of sin. That is what this says. There's natural dysfunction. There's psychological dysfunction. I think it's hilarious, but also telling that immediately they start what? Blame shifting. Immediately. It's because of the woman you put here with me. It's your fault, God. What, what's that show? And then she's, she blames the serpent. It shows complete unawareness of their own state. They're, they're like borderline sociopaths already. They write, they, they have completely unaware of their self. Psychological dysfunction. Sin causes you to blame God and others and not be honest about your own flaws. There's social dysfunction. Right away, you see that's that, that what happens? They realize they were naked and ashamed. All of a sudden, now they're controlling perception. I'm concerned about what you think of me, and you're going to be concerned about what I think of you. Social dysfunction happens. Relatability to one another. It distorts us. Sin distorts us. You see gender roles affected immediately, God says, that's going to happen. Look what he said. He said to the woman, he said, you will desire to control your husband, and then he said, "But but he will rule over you. That is so loaded, I wish I had time. But it says, uh, like the, the Hebrew where it says, he will rule over you, actually talks about like, he's going to try to lord over you. And it's not saying that in a good way. It's saying that men who oppress women is actually part of the result of the fall. That, 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 that kind of male tendency to dominate women is in fact part of the fall. This book has been used to actually oppress women uh, if you actually knew what you were reading, you would find out that this book actually shows, is like one of the, 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 the greatest books that actually shows the equality and brilliance and beauty of women It absolutely does not oppress women. And it immediately says right there, the result of the fall is men are going to try to lord over women. And then it says the result of the fall is women are going to try to manipulate and control men. I don't know if you found that true to be in your life. I haven't found it in mine, but you may have. You also find spiritual dysfunction, and we talked about that. We found that sin cuts us off from God. Okay, I've got I to kind of land the plane here. I wanted you to catch this. But how this ultimately affects us is this. Because of sin and the story we find ourselves in, if you are now Adam and Eve, and the story you find yourself in, what we find is Adam and Eve were disobedient to God, and the result of that was that they were removed from the garden, they found themselves naked and ashamed, and they no longer had access to the tree of life. So no tree, no clothes, no home. That's the effect of sin on humanity. No tree that brings life. We are mortal. Every one of us has an appointment with death. And we don't know when it is, and some, it always comes sooner than any of us want And it is this thing that we all deal with, and that is the result of the fall. We do not have access to the tree of life, is what the Bible says, that you cannot produce life. And do we not spend our lives looking for things that what? Make us feel alive. We're looking for the tree. It also says that we're naked and afraid. We are in search of clothes. If I put on this outfit, will you think I'm good? If I post this picture, will you give me a like? If I run for office, will they vote for me? If I get that job, will you think I'm a success? And we reach and we look for clothing in our lives. That is why a result of the fall. That we all know that we are naked and ashamed, and there are things about us that we want to project a certain image. So, no home, or sorry, no tree, no clothes and no home, no place to belong. The Bible says that God removed them from Eden, removed them from the place of union with him, removed them from the place of purpose and peace, shalom and meaning and health. We've been removed from our home, and that's why we all have this longing inside of us that we're made, ever felt like you were made for more than what you're currently experiencing? The reason is there is a home that you you are actually absent from right now. And so the Bible says the story that you and I live in from Adam and Eve till today is every one of us were born homeless, naked, and mortal. No tree, no clothes, no home. This is the human condition. Now here's the good news, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna land the plane in a second. Romans 6.23, six, 6, right at the start. For the wages of sin is death. We have a date with death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's my third point, and I want you to get this, and I hope this, I, hope, I hope this just starts to fill some things in for you. Jesus is the cure for sin, and everyone is invited. Death and dysfunction are the curse of sin, and everyone is infected, but Jesus is the cure for sin, and everyone is invited. And I wish I could jump in deeper than I have time for. But here's what you need to know about this story. This whole book is about Jesus. And this whole story is the good news about what Jesus has done in response to what we have done. In response to the fact that we are without a tree, without a home, and without clothes. Jesus is the response to that. Here's something you need to know when you read the book of Genesis. you read Genesis 3... If you're like me, you kind of picture God being surprised. Like, wait, what? You did what? And it's kind of in the language there, but if you, ha- you have to read the rest of the Bible to find out that God was not at all surprised by this. And then it says, in fact, in Revelation, at the end of the book, it says that before the foundations of time, God had set that his son would be slain. Why? Because he knew that this was going to go down. He knew that... that all of us who were given free will were going to be tempted and prone to have the same heart that the serpent had. And so he set in motion a plan of salvation that you see run from Genesis 3 all the way until Matthew. This whole book tells of what Jesus is about to do. You remember I had you underline something in verse 15? If you want to bring that back up, verse 15, I don't know if you have it on on the slides, but if you have your Bible open, just read it again. It says, I will cause, this is God, right in the midst of the trauma of the fall, God says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head. This is what in theological terms we call the proto-evangelion. What a fun word to say. (laughs) And what that means is the first gospel. This is the first time in the whole Bible where you are seeing foreshadowing... Speaking about Jesus to come. Isn't it amazing that you don't have to flip 10 pages, 100 pages, 100 chapters? It's in the first paragraph of the response at the moment of impact. God says, Her offspring, my son will come to crush the head of the serpent. This is the first gospel. And this is speaking about what Jesus would come to do. Now, Jesus is the story we we believe. The Bible says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Bible says that Jesus spent three years teaching, and then he went and he died on a Roman cross, and on the third day, he rose in a garden tomb. And now this is so significant, and I I wish I had more time, but you have to see this. Jesus is the great reversal to everything that went wrong in the garden Jesus made right on Easter weekend. Everything that went broken and sideways, from Adam and Eve to Noah, You're going to see Cain and Abel next week, and then Noah, and it gets uglier and uglier and uglier, and then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and, and you get Joshua and or Moses and Joshua and Judges and David and the kings and the prophets, and all the way up until that moment where Jesus took his last breath, Jesus is dealing, reversing sins. He becomes, he undoes everything that sin did and recreates everything that was broken in that moment. Jesus reverses the curse. Look at Romans 5.15. I wanted you to see this one verse. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace. Let me, I read that too fast. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater than the sin of Adam. How great's the sin of Adam? Massively great. We have seen it on full display our entire lives and in us and around us, in our relationships, on the news, we've seen it. It's great. For the sin of this one man, Adam brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness. Why? Because we're all complicit with sin, aren't we? It's not, we can't sit here and blame Adam. We've, we've chipped in for the gift of his forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads us to our, here it is, being made right with God. Restoration, recreation, resurrection, resurrection even though we are guilty of many sins. That is a huge statement. Through Jesus, you have been made new, made right, even though I have many sins and you have many sins. Through Jesus, we have been made right. For the sin of this one man, Adam, verse 17, caused death to rule over many, but here it is, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the cure for everything that's been broken in this world. Jesus is the new tree. You see, it was through one tree in Genesis that death was brought for all men. It was in another tree, on another tree, that one death brings life for everybody. And it was in a garden, one decision that brought death for everybody. And it was in a garden on the third day when Jesus, who had died for your sins and my sins, rose up out of the earth Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, out of the earth, a new creation, firstborn from the dead. Like this is, uh, I hope this is landing. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you come to Jesus, you have access to the tree that brings life. That's what the cross is. His death purchases your life forever and ever. And we're not just talking like, yeah, you can feel better in life. No, like Jesus said, if you follow after me and you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. You see, that's what we believe. We will rise again like Jesus did. The one who had the power to say, you're going to kill me and I'm going to get up in victory, who had the power to do that, when he tells me if I believe in him, I'll rise again, I believe him. When you put your faith in Jesus, you have access to the tree that brings life. The Bible says that we are clothed in righteousness. What's that mean? When you put your faith in Jesus, your shame has been covered. Your guilt is gone. It doesn't matter if you get Facebook likes. It doesn't matter what you did in the past. Doesn't matter what people have called you. Doesn't matter what your parents called you. Doesn't matter what happened in that relationship or that past mistake. When you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that you have been made right with God and you have been clothed in His righteousness. That means that when God sees you, He sees all the incredible deeds of his son. He sees in you what he sees in his son. You know what he said to Jesus? He said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine if the revelation of the fact that God likes you just went off in your mind? All of a sudden, those people who break your heart and those people who you vie for their opinion so much, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter anymore. God likes me. I don't care what you think. New clothes and a new home. The Bible says in Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old things had passed away. And then it says, God's home, his dwelling place will be with his people. You see, through Jesus, we have been been made new. Jesus is the new genesis, the regenesis, the resurrection, the recreation. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are entering in to eternal life. That is what this whole story is about from beginning to end. It's about the old you going away and a new you beginning now and forever. I asked the Lord this just even yesterday, okay, God, we're just, we're teaching a lot of stuff here. What do you want to say? Like, what do you want people to hear? And I just felt him say like, tell them, Left to yourself, you are broken, dysfunctional, and doomed to death. And you can avoid it. You can point the finger at it, say you're the problem. You can kick and stomp and scream. You can pretend it's not a real thing, but this is the truth, and you will have to deal with it someday. Left to yourself, you are dysfunctional, broken, and destined for death. But I felt the Lord just remind me that if, but if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come, has begun. And God begins to make you new now and that carries on throughout eternity. That's what we believe. I invite you to stand, you guys in at East and West as well. I'm going to invite you to come and we're going to receive communion today. And I want this to be a time of restoration, recreation. There are some broken spaces and places inside of you that only the word of God, only the life of God can bring recreation to. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So when you come to Christ in faith, He begins to do a regenesis, a new work in your life. And so maybe you've got some broken things from your past that are hanging over you and you're ashamed of it. Come receive new clothes today. Maybe you have been hopelessly wandering this world looking for things that will bring you life. Come to the tree that actually brings life today. Maybe you are just looking for a place to belong, a place of meaning, a place of purpose, a place of acceptance. You have that in Christ today. You have a home. And Jesus prepared a meal for us. Uh, the night he was betrayed, the Bible says that he'd had his friends together and tried to paint a picture of what he was going to do so that we would remind ourselves of what we have been invited to freely by his grace. He took some bread and he broke it. and He said, this is my body broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. Be thankful, be reminded that I died the last death, that I paid your punishment, that I took on your sin, that I was beat up so you don't have to beat up yourself. And then he took some wine and he shared it with his friends and he said, this is my blood poured out. It's a new covenant. Sin was the covenant of death. The law was the covenant of death. But now my covenant is grace that brings life. And so as you come to the table today, I just felt the Lord. And I feel like there are some folks here. I don't know maybe you're in at or West who really need a fresh start today. Like, you just just need a do-over. And you've been carrying old, broken, dysfunctional stuff. And I just feel the Lord say, no, today is a new beginning in Christ Jesus. I am making you brand new in Jesus' name. And so here's what I want to do. There's nothing magical about bread and juice, but something supernatural happens when you say, Jesus... Here I am, take me as I am, come into my busted life and make me new. It's supernatural, he does it. And so I'm gonna pray for us and I'm gonna invite you in at east and west at the front sections of all three of our campuses. There are tables and you can come grab the bread, grab the juice, go back, and I want you to receive it today as an act of faith, saying, Jesus, I believe in my state. I believe that I have sinned and fallen short, but I thank you, the wages of sin and death, but I thank you that the free gift of God is grace, It's righteousness in Christ. I thank you today for the free gift. And so today I want you to invite you to come and receive freely. If you are not able to say, I'm putting my faith in Jesus, please don't come to the table. But if today, maybe for the first time ever, maybe it's the first time it made sense, here's the requirement. It's faith and only faith. That's it. Jesus, you are who you say you are, and I need you, and I need a fresh start. And if that's you, I believe God's going to bless your heart today as you come and you receive the grace that he's given you. So let me pray. Father, we thank you today for grace. We thank you that we are made new in Christ Jesus, and I pray, Holy Spirit, as you have been moving in our service all day today, Lord, I pray that as we come and we receive these elements, this mysterious meal, Jesus, that you instituted, God, I pray that fresh grace would wash over us. Lord, for those who are walking through shame, God, I pray that you would just clothe us brand new today. That you'd be our label. That you'd be our style. You'd be our fashion. And God, for those who have been searching for life and searching for a high and searching for satisfaction and fulfillment, everywhere, God, I pray, as they come to the table today, they would find life entering their body like never before. And God, I pray above all, Father, as they come to this table, they'd hear the invitation of a father that says, come home. You're home. You're home. And so, Father, we thank you for grace today. Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst and we ask you, even as we worship now as you move in Jesus' name. Amen. And invite you to come as the band plays at all of our campuses, come and receive, take it right there, take it back to your seat. This is a time of recreation and celebration. Come.